Welcome to episode six of the Stronger by Science podcast. There have been headlines all over the place saying that 25 cups of coffee a day is totally fine for heart health. We take a close look at that study and figure out what it really showed. Greg also reviews a recent caffeine study that sought to determine if men and women experience the same performance benefits from caffeine supplementation. We've also got a great interview with multiple-time IPF world champion Natalie Hansen. We talked about a variety of topics, including her most recent world championship, some differences between raw and equipped powerlifting, and also some challenges that women face in strength sports in general. So thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm joined by my temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Greg, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back on. Of course. Yeah. Um, I'd say anytime, but I don't want to leave it totally open, but That's happy fair. to have you back. We just want to start by saying we want to thank everyone for listening. And we know that a lot of people are listening because, you know, Greg and I are active on the internet. We see the social media and it appears that there are now, um, I guess you'd call them some copycat podcasts popping up. I feel like that's a an accurate way to describe them. Yeah, I mean, we're a few episodes in and all of a sudden you can't throw a rock without hitting a fitness podcast. And I'd like to say I don't know where that came from, but I definitely do. Yeah, I mean, just so everyone is still aware, we were the first and at one time only fitness podcast on the internet. Um, and they've they've just been proliferating like rabbits in, in recent weeks. So uh, I'm not saying it's all because of us, but I'm also not not saying that. And I think the thing that adds insult to injury is that now all of a sudden I, I wake up, check my email, and it's people have the gall to ask me to be a guest on a fitness podcast. Are you kidding me? Like, literally, I'm going to steal food off your table. By the way, why don't you come over for dinner? Yeah, it's just the sheer level of disrespect is uh, is mind boggling. But anyway, it's it's fine. I, the most sincere form of flattery is imitation. So at the very least, we can take it as a compliment. And we can definitely rest assured that nobody's going to match our content. You can try to steal the format, but there's there's no way you're going to keep up with the, the hard-hitting content that we bring every week. No, for sure. Where else are you going to hear about, uh, you know, the effects of of research that applies outside of the context of Hinduism? <laughs> or... Uh, learning about doing kinesiology with crystals. Exactly. I feel like we're we're the only people bringing that level of of depth and rigor to the subject. Exactly. Now we've got a fan favorite uh, segment called Feats of Strength that no one has copied that yet, which is good. So, Greg, what are the feats of strength that you found this week? Yeah. So there's there's some wild stuff going down. So recently, Larry Wheels hit a gym PR on the bench at 675. That's 306 kilos, which one is a huge improvement over his current meat PR, which is 610, which is 277 kilos. Uh, and it's also noteworthy because um, the the list of men who have benched 675 in a meet currently sits at 10. So that's a, that's a, like the seven plate bench club is a incredibly exclusive club still um and he's god he's making so much progress on everything um i remember when he like exploded onto the scene a couple years ago and everyone was like 
who is this dude? He's crazy strong and also like hella jacked. Um, and like, I personally kind of thought it may have been a flash in the pan just because like dude's not built like a typical power lifter. Um, and by that, I mean like he competes at, at 275 and 308 and most guys in that weight class just, they're just big, like huge joints, generally kind of stubby. Like they look like they're robustly built to lift a tremendous amount of weight. And like, I mean, Wheels is obviously a big dude, but just his his frame doesn't look as big as those other dudes. Um, so I I was kind of nervous that he may not have the longevity to like keep pushing it before injuries started accumulating. Um, but now nah, like he he still seems to be killing it, getting stronger at a at a crazy pace. Um, so yeah, recent recent gym PR on the bench at six seventy five. So pretty wild. Uh, also on the bench press, Julius Maddox recently benched uh, 7.10, which is 322 kilos. So Julius Maddox, I believe, has already gone over 700 in competition before. So like, dude is a bona fide monster on the bench press. I feel like he doesn't get as much attention as he probably deserves for being a bencher of that echelon. When people think like, you know, huge benchers, most of most of the time, the first name that's going to come to mind is either going to be Eric Spoto or Kirill Sarachev. Um, and and with with good reason. I mean, those are the, the two most recent world record holders. But uh, I mean, you, you should you should just Google this lift because like, again, it's another gym lift, but it looks incredibly easy. Like it looked like he could have tripled it. Yeah, I was gonna say you showed it to me, and I was I was at first surprised that he racked it after one. Yeah, I, it was so smooth. I expected the second one to come. So I mean, be on the lookout because uh, I mean, Sarachev hasn't PR'd in several years. Like, dude's still young and huge. Like, he very well could be just saving up for a big number that he's gonna come out of nowhere and surprise everyone with. But I would not be stunned if Julius Maddox is sitting with the bench record at, at the end of this year. That's a hot take. Eh. You don't see that in other podcasts. That's a hot take. <laughs> True. Um, let's see. Few crazy deadlifts have happened recently. So Jamal Browner recently pulled uh, 875 beltless. A lot of people also don't know who Jamal Browner is because, again, he's... He's one of those guys who is incredibly strong, but isn't like a world record holder in his weight class yet. And powerlifting, like many other sports, like the folks people, like th there's a huge drop off in name recognition from like best in the world to like second or third best. But Jamal Browner is, is looking crazy recently. Uh, the 875 he pulled was like a legitimate speed rep. And maybe like a month ago, he pulled 900 for five which is outrageous. Um, thing about those lifts is he did them with straps. His current meat PR, I believe, is 865, which is 392 kilos. So, like, I mean, that's still obviously incredibly impressive. It makes me wonder if he may have grip issues. Um, if he doesn't, like, maybe he has just gotten, like, crazy strong recently, and we're about to see, like, a thousand pound pull out of him, which would be outrageous. 
But yeah, dude's looking crazy strong. Also on the beltless deadlift front, Kristoff uh, Wierbicki uh, recently pulled 919 at 210 beltless, which is 417 at 97 uh, kilos. So I, I'm not going to speculate too much, but uh, Wierbicki is like a multi-time IPF world champion, and I believe he recently retired from the IPF. So do with that information what you will. But it's looking like he may be about to take the Yuri Belkin trajectory where like Yuri was a top IPF dude. Um, I believe he got popped not for steroids, but for masking agents, if memory serves. But after that, he stepped away from the IPF, went on the sauce in earnest and is now like virtually untouchable in like raw untested powerlifting. It seems like we're Bicky potentially maybe taking a similar path, but like he, he competes at uh he competed at, at 105 or 231 in the IPF. And it's looking like he's probably gonna be a 220 or 100 kilo lifter if he competes untested. And currently Yuri Belkin is like the god of the total in that weight class, and Kaylor Woolham has the deadlift record. But Belkin's pulled 926, and Woolham has pulled 950 in that weight class. And it, it kind of looked like a two-man race for that deadlift record. But, man, if... So if my speculation is correct that Weirbicki previously was either, like, drug-free or, like, yeah, whatever. Like, maybe on low doses and beating tests. But, like, now is is maybe going to, you know hop on the sauce and, and do it right. I feel like that sounds a little too encouraging, but whatever. I was going to say, yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> there, there's a lot of children listening, I would imagine. Dude, so like, as a fan of powerlifting, like, I I like seeing people hit big numbers, and I really like watching the drug-free guys, but I think untested lifting is just more entertaining to me because right. the lifts are bigger. So, I, so our, our lawyer right now is... is... <laughs> Kind of waving me down. So let, let me add a couple things. The, the the drug speculation is hypothetical in nature. Okay. And certainly not a recommendation for and, anyone, any impressionable people and, listening at home. And just, just so you're aware, no one we discuss on this podcast, even if we use their actual name and talk about things that they actually did, are meant to comport one-to-one with real humans in real life. Correct. So... Everyone is a fictional character. It's like a South Park scenario. Uh, hopefully, our lawyer is good with that. Anyway, he seems a lot more calm. Anyway, all of which is to say, we're Bicky is looking strong as hell. Very well, could be fixing to get considerably stronger in the near future. Already a world class deadlifter, and I'm just excited to see where the deadlift record in the 100 kilo class will be in the next few years. Yeah, that, that of all the feats of strength, that number for some reason jumped off the page at me the most 919 at 210. You know, it did this, it did for me as well. And I think the reason why is when I got into powerlifting back in like 2005 or whenever it was, Ed Cohn still had like all of the deadlift records. I th- I think someone else may have had 165, but I know for sure he had the deadlift records at 181, 198, 220, 242, and 275. 
and potentially 308. I think he may have missed weight at 275 one time, but but I'm oh po- I'm God. positive when I got into the sport, he had all of the records from 181 to 275. Like I'm positive of that. Um, <laughs> and and the one that jumped off the page the most was his 903 at 220. And the reason for that is like at the time, I think maybe only four or five people had ever deadlifted 900. And all of them were super heavyweights. Uh, like Doyle Kennedy had, um, Andy Bolton had, Benedict Magnuson had. And then I think a little bit after that time was when Konstantin uh, Konstantinovs really started coming into his own. And he was like a 275, 308. But like just the fact that, you know, you had a very small handful of super heavies that had pulled 900 and then like a dude ripping it at 220, like... I mean, Cone was a monster, but I think that, to me, was his most impressive lift. So, like, that was that was the number that people would talk about back then and say, like, no one's ever going to take this record. And now the fact that both Belkin and Woolham have broken that in a meet, and Weir Bicky is pulling more than that in training, but, like, beltless, and looks very much capable of hitting that in a meet, it's, it's just wild, man. Let's see, last two feats of strength from uh, IPF Worlds, which when you're listening to this will be long gone, but when we're recording this is currently ongoing. Uh, to me, at least, the the so at the time of recording, the only lifting that's been done has been the lightweight women so far. And uh, Megan Scanlon squatted 178 at 57 kilos, so that's 392 at 125. That is a a new IPF world record, which I I feel like I'm dating myself. But when I got into the sport, a squat like that in that weight class was would have just been completely unheard of, like just something no one would have even conceptualized. And similarly, Heather Connor deadlifted 176 at 47, which is 388 at 103. Also, crazy number. I remember. I remember it wasn't that long ago that, like, even if you kind of had, like, progressive ideas about women and and strength sports, you would still kind of see, like, the women's records and be like, ah, like, they're strong for women. But, like, it, it's seriously getting to the point where you can't look at those numbers and just say, like, that's fucking strong. No matter who does it, if you're seeing someone in the in the low 100s squatting and or deadlifting close to 400 pounds, like... That's wild. Like that's a, that's a strong person. Oh, I mean, um, I, I I started my strength coaching career working with high school wrestlers. I've seen young men in their athletic prime who weigh less than one twenty five squat, and they weren't squatting that. No, I can tell you, I can tell you that. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> um. So so yeah, like IPF Worlds is currently ongoing. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more just crazy shit that happens over the next week. Uh, of competition but in in terms of the early going like those are the two numbers that really jumped off the score sheet to me as like jesus christ that's crazy so we've got a segment on the show called research reviews and we've got a couple this week i am going to lead us off today now i love coffee greg you love coffee yes sir we're all coffee lovers so anytime there's a study that hits the hits the press about coffee, it gets a lot of attention. Um, 
for some reason, fitness people and coffee are just a match made in heaven because it tastes good and there's no calories and it gets you all hyped up on caffeine. What's not to like? Now, there was a paper this past week that was really doing the rounds on social media. And the headline essentially suggested that drinking up to 25 cups of coffee per day did not have adverse health effects when it came to cardiovascular health. Very cool and very legal. Very cool, very legal. Now, if you've been in the game a while, you know that when you see that kind of lay press headline of the article, the only thing you can be pretty certain of is that the article didn't show whatever the title says in that lay <laughs> press article. That That's the only thing that you know for certain at the outset. So you very cautiously click on it and you figure out essentially what's the damage here? <laughs> How far away from the original have we gotten? And the reason I'm bringing this up in this week's podcast is because we got pretty far from the actual heart of that paper. It was uh, it was an abstract that we're talking about here, not a full-length research paper, but it's called Effect of Coffee Consumption on Arterial Stiffness from UK Biobank Imaging Study. And so the idea is we've got data on a huge group of people, thousands of people, and what the researchers wanted to figure out was how did their habitual coffee consumption affect their arterial stiffness? So um, it looks like they started out with a pool of almost 18,000 participants. They had good usable data for the final analysis for about 8,400 participants. So most exercise science studies, we'd be pretty stoked if we had 40. This study had 8,400. So we're venturing into the realm of your kind of typical epidemiology type study where we have thousands and thousands of people, which means that the methods are often different and that includes the statistics. So um, the, the most kind of obvious glaring thing to address right off the bat, a lot of the articles that hit the lay press and that got shared around social media, they just kind of understandably took a bit of a linguistic shortcut. And would say something like 25 cups of coffee a day, no effect on heart health. Now, I understand why, you know, a, a title for a lay press article can't be 25 words. It's not going to be like a small paragraph like you see with certain research papers. But it's really important to keep in mind that this particular study, which again is an abstract, they were only looking at arterial stiffness, two separate measurements of arterial stiffness both of which have been shown to be predictors of cardiovascular events. So it's not that it's wrong to say that the study was about heart health, but a lot of uh, a lot of the headlines made it seem as if it was a more comprehensive battery of tests looking at heart health. So it would have been a lot better if the article said up to 25 cups of coffee a day doesn't adversely affect arterial stiffness yeah. in this population. So that's kind of the first big thing is that this was not a complete, uh, you know, ca caffeine is off the hook when it comes to all sorts of cardiovascular events. We're yeah, just like looking. Our, our arterial stiffness is correlated with heart health, but it's not, it's certainly not the only factor in play. Exactly. So that's kind of the, the big one right off the bat that really doesn't require a lot more explanation. The next thing that came up in a lot of the discussions about this abstract were who the hell is drinking 25 cups of coffee a day? Because that's a lot. It, it is a lot. And 
I sit on my ass all day in my home with unlimited access to coffee. And I love coffee. And eight a day would be a huge stretch. And usually if I get to eight, I feel pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, we were we were very recently in a research environment as grad students surrounded by people who were who were mostly coffee addicts cuz that's that's kind of an addiction you have to develop to survive grad school and i would i would say we weren't we weren't the two biggest caffeine addicts in the program but we were we were probably in the upper quartile but even even the like most hardcore coffee addicts in that setting, which I think is a setting that kind of self-selects for people who drink a shit ton of coffee, maybe, maybe eight to 10 cups a day was, was the highest that anyone I can think of may have been sustaining. The, the question again, who in the hell is drinking 25 cups of coffee a day? The answer is uh, probably almost no one. What it what this does is it's a very good example of something that um, is certainly not unique to this study. It happens all the time in statistics, and that is taking a continuous variable and making it a grouped variable. Okay, so when you take a look at the abstract itself, what you see is they took these two arterial stiffness measurements, and these are both continuous measurements. They also figured out how much coffee these participants were drinking on a regular basis. But what they did was instead of leaving it as a number of, you know, five cups a day or seven cups a day or one cup a day, they formed three groups. So you, you either drank one or less cups a day between one and three cups a day or greater than three cups a day. And so they basically made those groups. And what they did was they said, we need to have some kind of a limit here. So if hypothetically you drank more than 25 cups a day, you would be excluded. Um, this is just an abstract, which means there's not a tremendous amount of detail and that's not their fault. They just didn't have space for it. I don't know how or why they came to that 25 cup a day limit. Um, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if that was just the highest number in their sample. It's very possible. They also might have suspected if the input was above 25, that might have been their number at which they no longer believed it was a real number. Yeah. And so sometimes in, in survey data... Like, like if, if someone meant to put in like 4.5. Like, exactly. Yeah, sometimes 4, sometimes 5, and they just accidentally input it as 45. It's like no way in hell someone's drinking 45 cups of coffee a day. Exactly. And you could even imagine scenarios. Anytime you do survey-based research, you have to go in and figure out, did people actually give me a legitimate answer on this? So I, I also wouldn't be shocked if potentially someone were to list in ounces mm -hmm. how, how much coffee they had a day. Oh, we, we ran into that problem at Stronger by Science one time. We have a, a still ongoing series on... Uh, some in, like a prospective injury study that we did. Andrew Patton was the guy heading that up. And the, the reason it's been a while since one of those articles was published is a hundred percent my fault, but that series should continue soon. But yeah, we, um, we definitely ran into that problem as well. Cause we wanted everything reported in 
kilos, if memory serves, and a few people just very obviously gave us numbers in pounds. Right. So, you know, some guy who reports that they weigh 160 kilos and they're squatting 450 kilos. It's like, no, like, there's a list of maybe four people in the world that those numbers could apply to. And I guarantee <laughs> you they weren't in, in our little study. Yeah. Um, so f- for something like that, like, you can go back and clean the data and look to see, like, okay, who obviously input pounds? We can just fix that for them. And then, yeah, there, there are some numbers that are just kind of fishy and ambiguous that, that you kind of just have to throw out and not really trust. Yeah, and if this were a full paper... Um, rather than an abstract, you could kind of look and see how were the questions worded and mm-hmm. what's the likelihood someone might have misinterpreted that, things like that. Uh, but for now, we're kind of left to the abstract, which is a very, very brief summary of what, what went down. So yeah, they, they said if you have more than 25 cups a day, we're not going to use your data. Now, this grouping happens often in research, and it's extremely common in epidemiology, but it happens in other applications as well. And there are some pros to doing this type of grouping, taking a continuous variable and kind of artificially placing people into groups, but it's not done without a cost. And a a good example of that is like hypothetically, you do a little bench press competition with six people and you, you could make it a very simple dichotomous variable and say, did you complete a rep or not? Yes or no. So it's kind of the most basic categorical level of of data or level of measurement. Now, you could go a step further and say, well, the top three out of these six people, we're going to say that they placed. So did you place or not? And so that's a little bit more informative. We could take it a step further and do a rank order and say, so-and-so got first, they got second, they got third, etc. So that's more data still. But, I mean, the most data you could possibly have would be to just leave it raw. So I know the the exact bench press for every person. I know, you know, this person wasn't just better than the other, but they were 20 pounds better than the other. Mm-hmm. So when you, whenever you kind of revert to more simple groupings or rank ordering, you are losing some amount of descriptive power within and, that And data. not just that, you're also losing statistical power. Correct. Yeah. And so that's why, you know, a lot of times when you see non-parametric statistics applied in research, you don't see a ton of it in exercise science. Um, But whenever you do see it, most non-parametric procedures are quite similar to normal stats, but what they do is convert everything to a rank order. And the reason they do that is because the data, it's generally done because the data don't conform to a normal distribution. So you violate a lot of the normal statistical assumptions that you would lean on. So yeah, you you sacrifice some of the explanatory power and the statistical power. And in the case of this study, I think there are two really prevalent uh, things to keep in mind. One of those things would be whenever you do grouping like this, necessarily this grouping would suggest that the difference between three and four cups of coffee a day is a substantially bigger difference than the difference between four and 24 cups of coffee a day. As far as the statistics are concerned, four and 24 are the same thing. Yeah. Three and four are worlds apart. Yeah. And 0.9 and 1.1 are equally worlds apart. Yeah. And so that is 
a huge limitation when it comes to making specific inferences about a number of cups of coffee within those ranges. Mm -hmm. So I don't know a lot of people who would at face value get on board with the idea that four and 24 are the same, but the results of this paper, you cannot make any distinction between four and 24 or 25. So that's an important thing to keep in mind when you look at this, uh, when you look at these results, the other important, I guess, outcome as a result of this grouping is, again, back to that question, who's actually drinking 25 cups a day w- without having all the data available or, you know, a full detailed description of the study in paper form? It, it's hard to be certain, but most likely almost nobody. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was pretty clearly the group that's four plus it's probably 95% of the people in that group are consuming between four and maybe eight to 10 cups of coffee a day. Exactly. And then, you know, then from 10 to 25, I'm not saying there are no people that drink that much, but they would have been so non-plentiful within that group that like their results would have essentially not affected the outcome for that group to any meaningful degree whatsoever. Exactly. So, and to kind of frame it a different way, imagine we were doing a study looking at diabetes risk, type 2 diabetes, and we did it based on BMI. And we had a group that was less than 25 BMI and a group that was over 25. If we look in that group over 25, and let's say we had some arbitrary cutoff where the BMI is 25 to 50. So if we were to do that type of grouping and most of our, you know, 95% of our sample had a BMI of 26 and we had like one person with a a BMI of like 41, you would not make the conclusion like, oh, turns out your type 2 diabetes risk isn't even that bad if your BMI is 49. Yeah. You know what I mean? But exactly. That's pretty much what we're seeing here is like theoretically there's a possibility that some small percentage of the people of that group actually were anywhere near 25 from from what i saw in the abstract i don't think you can be certain how many Mm -hmm. are actually close but really what we're looking at there is an effect that is almost certainly driven by a bunch of people that drink four to six cups of coffee a day for sure maybe four to eight yeah so um the reason that i i get so into detail is because it's not just about this. It's not just about caffeine and, and uh, arterial stiffness. This is something that you see time and time again in research, especially in epidemiology. So it's important to, to take a step back. And whenever you see grouping like this, think, what assumptions am I inadvertently agreeing to on the front end? And so in this case, what you're agreeing to is the idea that three cups and four cups are wildly different and four and 24 are the same. Yeah, and and I think that that's I think that that's one of like the key differences between people who read research and like understand what they're reading versus people who just kind of skim abstracts because like the the results of a study have to be interpreted in the context of what model they used. And like you said, different models have different types of assumptions that you bring into it. And if a model has bad assumptions, then it's not going to be, it's not going to be very useful to you. Uh, or, or, or at the very least, you need to be, 
more skeptical of the results and maybe not jump to the most radical possible conclusion of the results that you could jump to, which in this case is you're fine drinking 25 cups of coffee a day. Exactly. Again, you know, getting back to that metaphor, looking at type 2 diabetes risk, we've got a group under 25 and a group from 25 to 50. If, if all those people in the 25 to 50 group are like 26 or 27, they might not have an elevated risk of diabetes compared to the other group. But the last thing you would want to conclude from that study is apparently a BMI of 50 is totally fine. You're not going to get diabetes there. Yeah. And, and like, just, just so the listeners know, like that, that's not a wild metaphor here. Like, like that, that is actually a really, really good metaphor for the types of conclusions people are jumping to with this caffeine study. It's essentially the exact, uh, <laughs> it's, I've just changed the name of variables, but yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty no, much, no, yeah. for sure. It's, it's just like, I, I know that sometimes like f- for myself, for example, I don't come up with good metaphors on the spot. And so like what you're describing to the listeners probably sounds completely outrageous. Like there, there's no way someone would look at that and, and say a BMI of 45 is completely fine for diabetes risk. So like a lot of times if, if a metaphor sounds extreme, people immediately assume that it's not actually a good metaphor for the thing you're trying to make a point about. So I was just kind of like reinforcing and reiterating like, no, that actually is a really good metaphor. Like that's so that's you, exactly what's going on here. You don't think I'm being emotional and dramatic? Uh, Not this time. Okay, cool. I, I've kept my hysteria in check. <laughs> um, now the important thing is what do we actually make of this? We do have a pretty big body of literature pertaining to how caffeine actually relates to cardiovascular risk. Um, A very big body of literature going back uh, multiple decades. Now, a lot of the early literature made the conclusion that caffeine did, you know, habitual coffee and other caffeine intake did increase the risk of adverse cardiovascular events. Uh, So, Um, you know, heart attacks, uh, strokes, things of that nature. Now, what research has shown us more recently is that some of those preliminary studies did not effectively account for one very, very glaring correlation that we see in the coffee literature. People who drink a lot of coffee tend to smoke a lot. And so a lot of the more recent research looking at cardiovascular risk... Which kind of makes sense. It does, yeah. People who like uppers like uppers. Yeah. And so those are kind of the two best legal uppers on the market, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so (laughs) it's one of those funny things about research where in hindsight, it's like, of course. But, you know, when they were doing the studies, it's like, what do you want me to do? I've got, you know, this caffeine survey and all the people drinking all the caffeine are having heart attacks. And so a lot of the more recent studies have been a lot more aware of this pretty high correlation between caffeine intake and cigarette use. And the more recent studies are actually showing, in fact, caffeine doesn't seem to be particularly harmful when it comes to long-term cardiovascular risk. Um, When you look at coffee and, and caffeinated tea intake as a whole, they actually have some protective effects on a variety of long-term health outcomes when consumed in what most people would consider a moderate intake range. So if you're drinking the caffeine equivalent of one to like maybe five, possibly six cups of coffee a day, you actually see a lot of 
risk reductions when it comes to a lot of long-term health outcomes and mortality there. Once you start getting beyond that five or six cup a day range, those protective effects seem to become a little bit less apparent. And, and my guess would be that at that point, you're also dealing with other risk factors that you may not be accounting for in the model. Because like, dude, as, as as someone who really likes caffeine, the only time I personally would be consuming six or more cups a day is like if I'm stressed out of my mind and super sleep deprived. Like right. there, there's, there's no other reason that I would consume that much. And I'm someone who loves caffeine. So yeah, so that kind of makes me think that at that end, like, you know, maybe there's some other shit going on that you're not accounting for. Yeah. So now, now one caveat to that, there's a paper that said, if you are a fast caffeine metabolizer, uh, you're probably fine when it comes to, to coffee and caffeine intake with cardiovascular risk. But if you're genetically a slow caffeine metabolizer, you actually might have an increased risk when it comes to negative cardiovascular outcomes long term. However, I believe a more recent paper failed to replicate that particular finding. I think there was a paper within the last year yeah. that, that retested that finding and said, from our from our results that doesn't really seem to be the case so um th that is still kind of up in the air when it comes to determining exactly how we use the information we have about caffeine genotype mm -hmm. and how that relates to not just long-term health outcomes but even the performance effects of caffeine there, there's some research saying that your your genotype for the cyp1a2 gene might influence a whole variety of outcomes when it comes to your caffeine responses. Quick question. Did, and, and I don't know how, how much depth you looked into the, these papers in, but uh, did they control for oral contraceptive usage? I don't know off the top of my head. So one of the things that I recently learned, and by recently I mean like three days ago, is that... Um, that's apparently a pretty big deal for uh, caffeine metabolism. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I was completely unaware of that. Something else I learned is that uh, eating specifically char-grilled beef slows down caffeine metabolism. Yes. It's wild. Yeah. I so, had no idea. So when I was an undergraduate, uh, doing my undergraduate degree, they made us take a pharmacology course. And... What you find out very quickly in a pharmacology course is that the P450 enzyme system in the liver is kind of the big catch-all for all the shit you're throwing at your body. <laughs> like, if something needs to be dealt with, there's a high likelihood that the P450 enzymes are going to have to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, caffeine is metabolized primarily by, you know, CYP1A2, a particular P450 enzyme. And there are a tremendous amount of interactions of different, uh, not just drugs, but also foods, uh, all sorts of things you can do that affect the cytochrome P450 system. Something I, I think. I think one of the classic ones a lot of people are aware of is grapefruit juice. Yep, slows down the metabolism of caffeine. Yeah. And so there are some things you can do, some things you can ingest that either slow down or increase the, the rate of caffeine metabolism. 
um, based on how they affect that whole enzyme system as a whole. So yeah, grapefruit juice, charred meat, um, estrogen in general. Mm-hmm. So throughout, you know, things like pregnancy, throughout the menstrual cycle, um, the, it, it's quite sensitive to fluctuations in sex hormones. There, there are a, a whole list of fruits and vegetables. Don't, don't cruciferous vegetables affect it as well? Yes, cruciferous vegetables, yeah. Man, I wonder if that... If that has anything to do with the popularity of coffee and caffeine in, like, physique sports. Because, like, the classic bodybuilder meal of, like, chicken, rice, and broccoli. A lot of physique athletes are eating a ton of cruciferous vegetables. And also drinking a lot of coffee. Yeah. And I I wonder if those two things are related. I would say, as an elite two-sport athlete in the (laughs) physique sport realm... You drink coffee during prep because it's your only source of joy that is still there. Everything I, else has been taken from you I don't in think, prep. I don't think it's just a prep thing, though. Okay, yeah. I will say in, in prep, usually people take their normal coffee intake and double or triple it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're right. Even in the off-season, it, it, it is quite quite popular. I mean, I, it's it's just kind of the case, I think, that strength at, like strength, like resistance training people... Just love caffeine. And I, I think I, just people do, right? You know, maybe, but I think that it's particularly the case for resistance training folks. Like one of yeah. one of the worst kept secrets, or maybe best kept secrets, is that a lot of like Olympic weightlifters are chain smokers. Which like you can kind of get away with that because a lot of the stuff you're doing is like low rep and whatnot. So you're not going to be like huffing and puffing like you may after like a set of 15 squats or something like that. But you you just don't see in terms of how like strength and physique athletes abuse their bodies with stimulants. You don't see anything remotely similar in any other sport that I'm aware of. Like that. Yeah. That's all. That's all I'm saying. And so I wonder if there's like. I wonder if there's like a neurochemistry thing where like the folks who are crazy enough to be drawn to like elite strength sports and or just like crazy levels of resistance training if if like that interacts with like a similar type of crazy to make you also really enjoy uppers you've actually you've really opened my eyes in this conversation so i've been lifting since i was 12 i started strength coaching at 18 i did 10 years of college in this area everything i did as a hobby outside of college was in this area and I just realized when I said, I think everybody in general is just really into caffeine. I don't think I know anyone that's not into, <laughs> into lifting. <laughs> but <laughs> it's been like, for me, it's been like, God, 15 years or more of just only doing lifting stuff for work and enjoyment. Mm-hmm. But now that I think about it, the like rare human interaction that i have outside of lifting has been on just like going on dates and stuff like that with people who aren't into lifting and i they were all weirded out by how much i always needed coffee around now that i think yeah. about it like what's wrong with you and like yeah. what do you mean everyone lives from coffee cup to coffee cup and they're like <laughs> no not really yeah so i mean i don't know if like maybe i'm just trying to like justify things to myself maybe the two of us are just like outlier caffeine addicts but it it has been my observation that like folks who are into lifting really regardless of what lifting endeavor it is 
just like uppers and like specifically caffeine and coffee more like considerably more than the population as a whole. Like there, there are, there are multiple coffee companies that like are associated with like lifestyle brands for lifters. There's caffeine and kilos. I have a a bag of uh, brick house coffee downstairs right now. Got sent that for free. So little plug in return. It's quite good. I enjoy it. There's one... So, it, people who want to send free stuff, that's a free plug going out to 100 million listeners right now. Hell so yeah. keep that in mind. Um, I think, like, Death Wish Coffee primarily advertises to, like, CrossFit folks. Okay, that but, makes sense. But yeah, I mean, like, th- there's a huge culture around, like, caffeine and coffee in, spe- in particular in strength sports, like, in a way that I haven't seen for people with, like, other hobbies. Yeah. Well, we're going to put that to the test because by the time this podcast airs, uh, strongerbyscience.com will have a really big comprehensive caffeine article going up that basically tells you everything that a lifter would want to know about caffeine. So we will put that to the test and see exactly how much, uh, how many views that particular article gets, but we'll, we'll see how crazy people are about their caffeine. Hell yeah. Now, before we move on, I just want to put a little bow on this conversation. We've talked a lot about some of the, you know, I I don't want to beat up these researchers because what they've done with this grouping approach is extremely common, extremely common, especially in epidemiology. So it's not like we're like, whoa, what are these idiots doing? Like, this is kind of how business is done in in that area. Um, You could argue they should have left the variable continuous and done other approaches to modeling. So if you're a stat nerd, I'm not going to get into detail about this, but if you're worried that leaving it continuous might introduce nonlinearity into your model, you can include um, different polynomial terms into your model. Uh, You can also use something called spline regression that allows for some breakpoints within the model. So um, for the three of you listening out there, you can go Google that. There's a lot of good stuff out there. But um, to wrap things up, can we be certain or at all confident that 25 cups a day of coffee fails to increase any risk when it comes to cardiovascular health? We cannot be confident in that based on on this particular abstract. I still, based on the whole body of literature leading up to it, I'm still of the opinion that if you're drinking the caffeine equivalent of anywhere from one to five cups of coffee a day, you might see some slight protective benefits or at least minimal harm. Once you start drifting beyond five or six cups a day, you're kind of in an unknown area, but I would tend to, for a million other reasons, suggest probably capping it at the five to six a day range unless you really, really, really need to get bailed out of a jam. Yeah. I I mean, like, once you start talking about more than that, regardless of what time of day you're consuming it, it's probably going to fuck up your sleep. Yeah. Because, like, caffeine has a reasonably long half-life. Yeah. If, if you're putting down, you know, if you're putting down a gram of caffeine at 10 in the morning, you probably still have, like, 250 milligrams in your system at, like, 8 that night when you're hopefully trying to, to think about winding down. And that's that, that's the caffeine equivalent of, like, downing two cups of coffee at 8 p.m., yeah, and, and that's the thing that a lot of people miss about caffeine is I, I often hear people say, I drink a lot of coffee, I can drink it and go right to bed. Like, I'm not at all worried about having it late in the day because I'll sleep fine. Um, 
the half-life of, of caffeine is usually estimated somewhere around five, six hours, give or take. But if you look in the literature, you can find studies suggesting it's as low as two or three or as high as 12 uh, because there's a ton of variability there in how rapidly people uh, metabolize caffeine. And so something to keep in mind is the half-life is a thing. So if you drink a ton of caffeine and your final caffeine dose is coming at 4 p.m., it's you're going to have a substantial amount of caffeine in your system when you go to bed. And more importantly, just because you fell asleep doesn't mean you slept well. And so I think a lot of people trick themselves into thinking, I don't have to worry about this half-life. I can drink caffeine very late in the day because I know I'll get to bed. In reality, there's probably a high likelihood that even though you managed to fall asleep, you probably had a non-negligible negative impact on your sleep quality. Yeah, it, it'll it'll decrease uh, deep sleep. It'll decrease REM sleep. If if you're if you're someone who consumes a lot of caffeine and you habitually get like a good night of sleep and still wake up feeling really really tired the next day, it, it's probably worth experimenting on cutting back a little bit and and cutting off caffeine a little bit earlier in the day. Just just to see if that affects like subjectively how you feel upon waking. Yeah, I mean, if any of my coaching clients tell me they have sleep issues, the the very first thing I say is, how much caffeine are you having and, and when is it getting ingested? Like, mm-hmm. even if it's not right before bed, it could be making an impact. And we were looking at a paper the other day on theocrine, which is very similar in structure to, to caffeine, which means that it has a lot of similar effects on the body. Uh, one of the differences it has is its half-life. And I was reading a paper that was basically suggesting like, oh, it's got this extended half-life, which is awesome because then it's going to be, you know, more time of having a stimulant in your system. And I was looking at the paper and I was like, how am I supposed to believe that a, a what was it like a 24, 26 hour half-life for a stimulant? Wait, I thought you said it was like 16. It might have been. Whatever it was, it was a double-digit half-life. Yeah, I, I forget the exact number. I remember it like being... You, you, can, you consume a fair dose of it first thing when you wake up in the morning. You'll probably have at least a quarter of that dose still in your system the next morning. Yeah, and so like it, it's kind of new. So we'll see if uh, if more research comes out saying, oh, actually, for, for you know, chemistry is pretty wild biochemistry maybe there's some mechanism by which people are able to avoid sleep issues with it It, it's way too early to tell with that it's not Mm -hmm. like caffeine where we actually have studies directly looking at that but um the moral of the story is who's drinking 25 cups of coffee a day probably nobody does 25 cups a day increase uh, arterial stiffness we probably don't know because probably very few people in that sample actually did that we are probably looking at the effects of actually drinking like four to six cups a day yeah, and extrapolating that to 25. And in conclusion, if you're worried about your long-term health risks uh, and how caffeine might affect them, getting your caffeine primarily from coffee and tea and keeping it in the equivalent of like one to five, maybe one to six cups of coffee a day is probably going to be the ideal strategy and not having them right before bed is always preferable. Um, if you look at a lot of papers on caffeine, they're pretty much going to tell you, they, they all say 
400 milligrams a day or less. Some of them go as high as 600, but I've, I've never in my life seen a, you know, a thorough comprehensive review paper that says, you know, what would that be? 2,500 a day at 25 cups of coffee. Yeah. Thereabouts. Yeah. I haven't seen 2,500 a day. Six, 600 is as bold as I've seen. God, that's wild. It is wild indeed. So uh, I'm looking at a caffeine article from Mass this month as well. Um, Which one are you looking at? uh, The Skinner paper looking at uh, sex differences. Oh, okay. Yeah. So hot off the presses, study called women experience the same ergogenic response to caffeine as men, which first, let me just take exception with what the researchers did here. Uh, I wanted to tell you about this study and give you the results and they didn't put a spoiler warning on the title and so like now now you guys you guys know how this is going to go so there's there's no uh there's no suspense there's no build-up um i hate when they do that it's like when we saw that movie called the avengers and i knew surely they're going to avenge whatever someone's gonna get avenged yeah god it's ridiculous anyway so this was uh this was a depressingly important paper, uh, and the reason I say it's depressingly important is there is a very considerable amount of research looking at the ergogenic effects of caffeine, and the vast, vast majority of that research has been performed in only male subjects, and so like the thing with, with exercise science is there is a... a sex gap in terms of like the subjects and studies and it's not as bad as it used to be so like recent i think the most recent paper looking at this was published in like 2014 and it found that it was like kind of a 60 40 split about 60 percent of the subjects are men about 40 percent are women should probably be closer to 50 50 but like honestly like 60 40 is not terrible it used to be closer to like 80 20 70 30 going back 15 20 years uh so like Things are improving, but looking at the field as a whole is kind of myopic. So the the gap, the sex gap in participants uh, varies considerably depending on what research question you're talking about. So when you look at like the sarcopenia literature or like the osteoporosis literature, you see a lot of female subjects. And for osteoporosis, you see more female subjects than male subjects. Um, but then like, Especially a fair amount of resistance training, like quite a few questions within resistance training, and especially for a lot of like like supplementation niches, you see like a much more well-defined gap in terms of how many studies use male subjects versus how many use female. Uh, and, and caffeine was a supplement where that was particularly notable. And so this was actually the first study uh, using both male and female subjects that had them perform the same uh, actual like exercise testing protocol to compare directly, like do women also have a similar increase in performance due to caffeine as men do? Uh, so like, do they also have an increase and is that increase similar to, to what you see in men? Because yeah, we, we have a ton of research showing that in mostly men, caffeine is good, causes ergogenic effects, but not as much in women and, and precious little directly comparing men and women. And so this study 
let me just start off by saying it was exquisitely well controlled, which is awesome. Um, they made sure hydration was consistent for the 24 hours prior to testing sessions. They um, fed the subjects a standardized diet to make sure that wouldn't affect things. They fed them a standardized meal before the study started. They made sure that all testing took place at the same time of day. Like they really um, dotted their I's and crossed their T's when it came to controlling all relevant variables. And what they did is they had all of the subjects complete um, complete two time trials. Uh, the The distance of the time trials was, I believe, 75% of the individual's peak sustainable power output times 3,600. That was like the total amount of work they needed to complete. Um, and in one session, they gave people a placebo. In the other session, they gave them uh, three milligrams per kilogram of caffeine. And they were just looking... The, the primary variable they were looking at was time trial performance, so how long it took to complete that amount of work. Um, and then they were also looking at caffeine metabolism, so what caffeine levels in the blood or in the plasma looked like before exercise and also after exercise. And they also took heart rate and RPE measurements as well. So long story short, they found that um, women did experience the same ergogenic effects of caffeine as men did. So the average increase in performance in men was like 4.3% for women. It was like 4.6%. Those weren't significantly different, obviously, and they were both significant increases within each group. As I mentioned earlier on the podcast, I recently learned that hormonal contraceptives had a had a big increase on caffeine metabolism. All of the women in that in this study were on the pill. Um, and they tested them during the high hormone phase of, of their pill to try to standardize hormone levels between the women as well as possible. Um, they found that pre-exercise caffeine levels were similar in men and women, but for the men, caffeine levels in plasma were basically flat pre to post exercise. And for women, it actually increased from pre to post, um, pretty considerably. So that maybe suggests like slower uptake and, and also slower metabolism. Um, however, blood caffeine levels weren't correlated with the, the relative magnitude of benefit people saw from the caffeine supplementation. And then in terms of heart rate RPE, uh, rate of perceived exertion was the same in both sexes, uh, regardless of whether they were on um, caffeine or the placebo which is very consistent with prior research. So basically what you tend to see is that if people are doing like a fixed workload in a fixed amount of time, caffeine supplementation decreases perception of effort. If you're, if, if it's something like this where it's kind of maximal output, you're trying to complete a set amount of work as quick as possible, what you tend to see is better performance with the same perception of effort. Um, so that was consistent with prior research and the same in both sexes here. Um, and then also, which, I mean, that would kind of make sense because yeah, like if yeah. you're going all out and trying to do it as quick as possible, of like, course, it's going to be fucking hard. It's going to suck. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no matter what you're on. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, like, like for submaximal stuff, caffeine tends to make things feel easier for maximal. It still feels hard as fuck. You're just 
better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then for heart rate, uh, average heart rate increased a little more for men than women in this study, which was interesting. Uh, it increased by about seven beats per minute in men, uh, which was a significant difference, and only about two beats per minute in women, which I think may have been like barely significant, like P between 0.04 and 0.05, but I'm two two beats per minute is effectively nothing. So yeah, this, like I said, w- was an important paper because in some areas of the literature, there's a lot of research on men, and we look at it, and we just kind of have to hope and assume that it applies to women as well. And so when we get a study like this bridging the gap, showing that like, hey, when we look at aerobic performance, we've We've tested this considerably on men before in isolation, and have tested it a few times in women in isolation. But now when we test them head-to-head together, we see similar effects, both in terms of the type of effects you see and the magnitude of the effects. That can make you a little more comfortable that the rest of the research findings that we've seen previously in men probably will apply to women as well. For caffeine. For caffeine. Right. Yeah. Which is big because so much work has gone into establishing this entire body of caffeine literature and yeah until we see more of these very tightly controlled kind of within the study showing those same types of effects that gives us a lot more confidence yeah and and there's there's a finite amount of research funding and so you don't want to have to take 20 years of research conducted on men and say like shit we should have looked at women as well and then spend like 20 more another 20 years (laughs) and a whole bunch of like resources running back all of those same studies, you know? So when we can get a study like this, that bridges the gap that shows like, Oh man, there was a, there was a glaring oversight in the research previously. We really should have checked this out in women as well. If you test it and then it's like, Oh, we're seeing big differences. Then it's like, well, now it's time to be skeptical of this whole body of literature and whether it will generalize to women or not. Uh, but but when you see it, when you see similar effects in men and women, it, it gives you a little more confidence that like, okay, like we have this pretty big body of literature. It's, pr- it's probably going to apply pretty similarly to both sexes. It's particularly important when you consider how variable the caffeine literature is in terms of just what we are looking at. You know, so we have so much literature looking at the timing of doses, how high doses should be time trial performance for endurance, uh, submaximal performance for long durations for endurance, vertical jump, one rep max, reps to fatigue, sprint peak power, sprint mean power. I feel like to someone who's not familiar with the literature, it's like, who cares if we have to do a few more studies in women to replicate all of it? And it's like, no, if we can do one study to give us confidence that all these things will translate, that's going to save us as a field so much time, so much money, so many headaches. Oh, so for, that that's oh, why sure. it's so critical. And 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 one thing to note here, uh, dear listener, is you may be listening to this and thinking that that we're maybe being a little overconfident because, like, you know, this is primarily like a lifting podcast. Like Eric's a bodybuilder, I'm a powerlifter. Most of you guys are probably into strength and physique sports in some way, shape, or form. So it's like, why are you generalizing this much from a study on aerobic performance? Uh, And my answer to that would be, um, 
I assume I assume your caffeine article is going to be out by the time that this episode goes up. So yeah, so check out the article that Eric wrote about caffeine, how it affects performance, and the mechanisms by which it does so. The cool thing about caffeine is it has beneficial effects on a very wide variety of like types of exercise, but the core mechanism, which is adenosine antagonism seems to be the same mechanism by which it improves all of those different facets of performance. So if you can nail down that like, okay, we know that this mechanism improves all of these different types of performance. We know that caffeine affects this mechanism. And now that we see like it affects performance and therefore probably this mechanism, the same in both sexes in like one aspect of performance, since it's the same mechanism, it, it probably generalizes. You you very much can't make that statement about some other type of supplement that maybe has like multiple different primary mechanisms of action and like maybe improves aerobic performance in one way and strength performance in another way. But with caffeine, it has that one core mechanism. So like things seem to generalize pretty well. And that's one of the reasons why it's been so successful at improving so many different kinds of performance from everything from like one rep max to very, very long duration aerobic performance. Yeah. It's an incredibly versatile ingredient, but it's it all comes back to the adenosine antagonism. So yeah, to, to see that a tightly controlled study like this shows so much overlap between the male response and the female response is pretty huge. All right. Well, I think that might be... Uh, probably a good time to wrap up this episode. I, I noticed you took a, a jab at me. You said I was a bodybuilder when you know that I'm also a classic bodybuilder. <laughs> so usually when things get testy in the recording studio, it's well, time to call it quits. People primarily refer to Bo Jackson as a football player. <laughs> That's, That's not a jab at Bo. Bo still knows, goddammit. Uh, okay. But whenever things get testy, it's time to kind of cool things down, take a break, <laughs> maybe take a walk. So... um for this episode, we've got an awesome interview. We, we, we've talked a little bit in this podcast about some crazy feats of strength. We've also talked about um, more female-specific aspects of research and the fact that it, it's kind of challenging using some of the, the research that's available to make recommendations for women because there, there are a lot of gaps there, you know, kind of uneven treatment, so to speak. Now, we sat down and had an interview with Natalie Hansen. And First of all, she was still still kind of buzzing about she had just recently won the World Bench Press Championships over in Tokyo, I believe. Yeah. So we, we talked to her about her and, own... And had to set a crazy PR to do so. Yeah, very crazy PR. So she shared some strength feats of her own. And then we, she also talked to us a little bit about unique challenges that women face in the fitness and more specifically the powerlifting world. Um, so it, it's a very, very good complimentary interview to pair up with this podcast. So we had a great time talking to Natalie. We hope you'll enjoy it and we will see you after the music. Natalie, thank you for joining us. Uh, how's life? Uh, life is good. I'm pretty jet lagged. We just got back from Japan uh, two nights ago. So it's that's hit me pretty hard. 
Was that traveling for, for business or pleasure? Um, I mean, I suppose it's a little bit of both when you're competing. So I competed at IPF uh, equipped bench worlds in Tokyo. Oh, I, I saw you. Uh, you won, right? Uh, bench yeah. 202? Yeah, it was crazy. It was That's wild. <laughs> it was wild. I'm still kind of like in disbelief about it. I uh, so so I briefly saw some highlights of that on on Reddit, I believe. I think that's a good place to start, though. Uh, sure. Do you want to just give the listeners a play-by-play? Yeah, um, and it's only a three-lift meet, so it's easy for play-by-play. Um, <laughs> so, so going in, I I did USA Powerlifting Open Nationals exactly two weeks prior, and that we considered that my kind of training test for Bench Worlds. Um, I've never done Bench Worlds before. I've I've gotten the invitation a couple different times, and just it's not a priority of mine. So I usually turned it down. But when, it, when I got an invitation for Tokyo, I was like, I can't really pass that up. Um, so we did a training test at nationals. I hit 192.0. Um, it was not easy. It was like a max effort lift. And, um, so I think going into bench worlds, we were like, well, you know, I'm not going to have squatted 265 prior and um, I'll have, you know, that whole week basically of, of tapered, uh, I'm not going to be squatting or deadlifting really at all. And so I'm going to be all fresh and ready to go, but still, you know, maybe another five kilos going into the meet. Um, but I, I said, like, I'm not here. I was nominated second. And I said, I'm not here to take second. Like, I don't, I'm not really interested in messing around with um anything beyond below first place. (laughs) So, uh, it was, it was pretty wild. I, um, I had to cut more than normal, um, just because of the travel, I retained more water than I normally do. And so the night before I was, um, doing a water cut and kind of in unfamiliar circumstances, getting ready for a bench only meet, um, where I'm not, you know, super familiar, super familiar with the environment. We had a flight of 20 lifters. So a lot of things that were just different and I didn't really know what to expect of myself. Um, we, we opened at the heaviest. I said I was comfortable opening because with a three lift or a single lift meet, the strategy is all about lifting position. And mm-hmm. ideally if you're competing with somebody, you want to be lifting after them. So if you get, um, if you have a lower lot number, at weigh-ins, then you want to open heavier than them, ideally, so that you can watch where they go. Um, I told the coaches that I wasn't comfortable opening with anything higher than 185 kilos, which is um, 407. And um, that ended up being the second second to heaviest opener behind or, you know, second to this Russian girl who she just benched 147 and a half kilos raw earlier in the meet. So she's like this strong chick. Jeez. Yeah. So she opened, um, I think at 187 or something like that. And, um, we just kind of based on my opening, the opener speed just went to 190. Um, it was, I was a little more tentative on it than I should have been or than I normally would be, but that's kind of, the nature of just trying to get the opener is like, I'd rather have it be a little bit more difficult and make it clean than risk, um, risk a miss and things can go wrong really quickly with equip bench. So you just have to be careful. Went 190. Um, she 
also went 190 on her second and um I just destroyed it like the best it's ever moved for me and I was like all right this is it's game on <laughs> um mm-hmm. and she was really strong too she she just pressed it like no problem well what happened is we have a team of USA coaches that are really skilled in calling numbers at bench meets and I think they the Russian coaches may have been less experienced or just didn't realize that I was coming to like like uh battle with her they maybe they thought that I was just going to take you know another two or five and just kind of be done yeah so she, so they bumped her up to um 202 and a half I believe and then basically they made the wrong call on her third attempt initially. So you get two changes just like you do on deadlifts in a powerlifting meet. You get yeah. two changes on the third bench and they put in the wrong number. Um, it was a number that was going to be, I, I think lower than my third plan. And then they had to submit their change right then. So they burned a change right off the bat and mm-hmm. the coaches were like, that's when they were like, all right, let's go. So they put in two Oh five for my third. Um, and, you know, I'm just like, I felt so good on my second that I, I felt like my ceiling was pretty high, but I, I told him like, whatever it takes. Um, and so she dropped to uh, 201.5 and then I dropped also to 201.5. And so basically whoever's the uh, lift first lifter um, is if she break, if she hits it, then I bump up to 202, like that automatically happens. Yeah. And we in the you know meanwhile there was a, a Norwegian who was really strong and she was um, she had missed her opener and that kind of threw her off but she was taking 190 on her third which would have tied me and she would have beat me on body weight if I were to have missed my third so we had to watch the Norwegian first and um, and then make the call for what we were going to do on mine because if if she pressed 190 then I was going to have to just go 192 and a half and just secure silver. She missed it. And so the coaches then they were like, all right, we're, we're going for it. Gold medal and world record. So the Russian goes first with 201 and a half. She kills it. And then um, I took 202 and, you know, pressed it. And it was crazy. <laughs> um, my coach was my personal coach was texting the coaches and he said, you know, I think she's 50, 50 with one ninety five and or one ninety seven and a half. And they were all kind of like, yeah, she's maybe got one ninety seven and a half, but two Oh two is a reach. And it was, uh, it was really nice. <laughs> like I keep watching it and I'm just like, I don't know where that came from, but apparently I've been sandbagging. So <laughs> it was so, fun. so was that like a 10 kilo PR for you? Yeah. 10 kilo PR after, and I've never pressed two Oh two or anything over, um, I've never done over 192 and a half full range. So I've done that to boards and stuff, but I've never taken that to my chest, anything more than, than 192 and a half. So that kind of makes it, yeah, it makes it even more crazy. I think. <laughs> that's wild. That's like, uh, that's like Steiner's third attempt clean and jerk back in, uh, <laughs> Beijing or wherever. That's awesome though. It's like Congrats. a total, a total like hail Mary. <laughs> so where do you think it came from? Do you think it was just like, just rising to the moment of the competition? Or do you think that like maybe 200 was a number that had been in your head that like scared you a little bit and that just kind of forced you to go over it? Mm -hmm. Like, do you, do you, do you miss in training? Is it something like you tried 195 
several times before and missed it or? No, no. So my training is um, pretty conservative. I'll have one uh, essentially like test week before a competition, three weeks out. And I hit, depending on how training has been going, I'll hit anywhere between, you know, 97 and 102% of my, my PR. Um, my best bench in a, in a meet prior to nationals was 191.5 in, mm-hmm. um, the, at the Arnold in 2018. So it had been about a year. I don't really miss in training. If I miss in training, it's because I, it's technical. Like I've, you know, I, I pulled the shirt down too much or I was too hesitant and I, you know, miss groove and, and it's all like technique based. And a lot of times, so for example, in uh, my training cycle for nationals, I, um, kind of, can we, can I use cuss words on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Greg yeah, we, almost we, exclusively we, uses cuss words okay. on this podcast. We, we, the, um, the, I this, this is, this is only a family friendly podcast <laughs> if all of the kids have moved out of the house. Okay, perfect. So I, I totally ate shit with, um, one night, 187 and a half. And I sent the video to my coach and he said, uh, you pulled your shirt down too much, load 190. And I, loaded 190 and stroked it. So that's the kind of thing that will happen is like, it's not really ever like, I can't press it out. It's just that I like, I fuck up on my end. Um, So that's kind of the gist of it. I've had a couple of really interesting training sessions with a guy named Mike Womack. He's um, the owner of the bench daddy. If you guys are familiar with that. Yeah. And he's a a multiply bench coach and, and bencher. And, um, I've had two sessions with him when I've been in Texas previously and he, uh, he kind of reframed in my mind, what's like humanly possible for me. So, uh, what the last time I was, I did a training session with him, he loaded 225 kilos and I took it for a double to a, uh, one board, I think if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And so like, I don't ever really think that I'm not like, oh, now I can bench 225. Like I come out of that with like just kind of a a, a better um, understanding of like what I'm capable of holding in my hands. You know, obviously I pressed it. It's just a, it's a different mindset. And so I'm not really afraid of 200 kilos. Like I've never been like, that's a scary load. I don't want to see that on the bar. I think it just comes from, um, it just, it just came from, I'm, I'm really pretty experienced on the international stage at this point, but I've never been, I've never been challenged on the international stage to the point where I have to like make a lift to do, you know, to get a certain placing. And so gotcha. it was like, maybe, maybe it was just kind of like this thing that's been pent up that I haven't really been able to use and I finally mm-hmm. got to use it. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was more like just the, in the moment kind of gamer mentality and like I'm not here for second place like and I'm and I don't really have any fears of what's going to happen if I don't press this I gotcha that that makes sense that's awesome so so just just for the listeners uh if you don't know who Mike Womack is uh and and correct me if I'm wrong on this Natalie isn't he the first guy to ever bench 900 in single ply um maybe I feel like I should know that I I think (laughs) he was he he was like he's past his prime now but he was definitely one of the best like five or so super heavyweight mm-hmm. equipped benchers back in like the late the late aughts and like early 20 teens. Yeah. That sounds about right. Yeah. He's he's like some of the things I would hear him he would tell me when we trained together 
I'm just kind of like, I don't, I can't comprehend uh, how that works, but I'm going to just do it because you're telling me to do it. And, <laughs> um, and then, you know, it kind of like, um, I, I would come away from those sessions, like m- with my mind blown, like, yeah, it was, I mean, immediately for the, the first time I worked with him was like a month out from, um, 2017 nationals. And my bench was just kind of like, meh, like, you know, mid somewhere around 150 or 160 kilos kind of, kind of stuck there. Yeah. And I benched 175 at that meet. And it was like, like, I don't know where that came from, but, <laughs> but I did it. So that's, that's kind of how my, um, where a lot of my kind of fearlessness on equipped benches come from is those sessions with Mike, because I'm always like, I've done 30 kilos more than this with Mike. So I, I gotcha. That, that makes sense. So how, uh, how, how much do you get out of your equipment? Cause you, you either do compete raw or have competed raw as yeah. well. Right. Yeah. So, uh, most recently, I, I think I get probably 80 kilos out of a bench shirt. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I think that's pretty high for somebody, for like a non, you know, 120 or 120 plus guy. Um, That's a high percentage. Um, Out of my squat suit, my best squat, like all time PR is 197 and a half raw. Um, I haven't worked up to a a raw max since 2016. So I, I just legitimately don't know. But, um, I, you know, I squat 270, my best squat is 273, 275 in training. So that's a, Mm -hmm. that's a lot. (laughs) I don't, can't do the math off the top of my head. Deadlift suit is almost like backwards. Um, it's like, you know, zero to sometimes even negative kilos. (laughs) (laughs) It just makes it, it makes deadlifting suck a little bit less. So. I gotcha. That makes sense. So so it sounds like. I mean, like, obviously you're strong as shit, like, no matter how you slice or dice it. But it sounds like on top of that, you're quite the technician with the equipment as well. So, like, how, what what sort of work does it take for someone to get good with equipment? Like, I, I know, I've seen so many raw lifters say, like, oh, like, the gear does all the work for you. Like, if I threw on a squat suit, like, I'd put 300 pounds on my squat, just, just yeah. completely talking shit. Like, what... Yeah. What is that process like to to get good dog? Yeah, um, it's it's long and kind of drawn out. And I think that um, so I generally had pretty good technique from when I started. I had a pretty solid athletic base. And so I was, you know, my my body awareness was um, was decent as far what, as <clears throat> what what is your athletic background? Um, so I, I played volleyball until I got to college. And then in college, I did um, some club volleyball. And then I transitioned and kind of stopped with the team sports and started doing CrossFit. Gotcha. Um, so I did CrossFit for a few years and competed and and like was, you know, I was pretty into it. And then when I realized like there's way too much to get good at, to be good at CrossFit. And I'm mm-hmm. I, like stressed, the, the variability stressed me out a whole lot. So then powerlifting was like, you know, inserted into my life. And I was like, hey, I have ultimate control over everything. And <laughs> like, this is perfect. Um, so that that was kind of the natural fit was to just uh, control almost every variable, you know. Um, I gotcha. So 
yeah, I think just from the beginning, my technique was was pretty solid on the big three. Deadlift, like I said, deadlift is always kind of an exception to um, to this stuff for me because it's much more reliant on your leverages. Um, but yeah, I mean, squatting came naturally to me. And then I think I, I just got more serious about squatting because I was good at it. And so I was like, this, I like this one. Um, and just mostly like probably over analysis, um, and kind of obsession with making things always look the same. And that took years. And I did that, you know, I did that when I was a raw lifter too. And I, even when I was, you know, a brand new raw lifter and I thought I would see something weird happening with my technique and I would, you know, ask my coach, like, what's going on here? And he's like, oh, like, don't worry about it. You're just, you know, you're kind of over, overthinking it. Just do the work and you're going to get stronger. And I mean, there was some truth to that, but I could, but I did always have this tendency to um, get really, really into the details of what my lifts look like and um, just trying to maintain as much consistency between reps and sets as possible. So that is part of it. Um, another part of it is, uh, as, so for benching is, uh, discipline. So I use, um, so for a long time, so early on, I, I wore a, what's an F called an F6 bench shirt, which is kind of the lowest level of a bench shirt you can get. It's, um, it's for, you know, kind of for beginners. And I saw, you know, my first time in a bench shirt ever, at the time I was benching 95 kilos raw, so 209. And the first time I ever put an F6 on, I benched 315. And I don't really know where that came from besides some level of fearlessness in putting 315 on the bar. Um, And maybe stupidity, I'm not really sure, but I, but I did. And so then that was kind of this, um, start to equipped benching that really got me going. And after my couple of meets in an F6, everyone told me, you know, you upgrade to a super katana now, like that's the higher level shirt. It's, um, it helps more. It's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I did that. And then my bench completely plateaued for two years and I thought it was Mm -hmm. me. And I'm like, you know, just trying to like figure out my technique and figure out all this stuff. Like, Oh, maybe it's the training. Maybe it's, maybe we're peaking wrong, like whatever. And, um, it just couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. So I went back to an F6 and then I hit a 15 kilo PR. So I think part of it is, um, learning, learning to, uh, experiment on yourself. So what someone else's answers to, you know, what, like what Blaine does in his training or, or what, how he wears his gear, what gear he uses is not going to be the right thing for the next person. And, um, I try to, preach that as much as possible to people, just that you have to be your own kind of guinea pig because, um, you might not know what, you know, what you're capable of if you're not just, if you're just kind of like doing what everyone else says you should do. So, uh, that's part of it too, is this, um, I'm, I'm comfortable like ordering something that might not, you know, might not be what I'm used to, or might be kind of against the, um, the grain or the conventional wisdom and just taking it for a ride and seeing what happens. A lot of times that ends up not helping, but um, <laughs> it's good, good to know that. And then I can kind of cross that off my my list of potential options and and maybe come back to it later. But But yeah, realistically, like being willing to experiment on yourself and just kind of trial and error until you feel like you have it right. 
I, I really like that answer because it confirms my own biases. Like the, the one of the things I tell everyone is that the general advice that's floating around out there is generally good for most people most of the time. But to really like maximize your training or your technique for yourself as an individual, once you kind of get your feet wet and have a decent idea of what you're doing, it's like it's 98% troubleshooting. Mm-hmm. And I find that talking to really, really good lifters like, they intuitively get that. Um, and then a lot of other people are just afraid to try anything that isn't what someone has like explicitly recommended to them. Yeah, totally. I, I also, part of me, that kind of, um, that reliance on information from other people, like how much, how much is that a, a modern day thing in the sport and how much of that it like due to social media or just kind of like creating these like idols in coaching and stuff like that and how much of it is being in your bubble and just being comfortable that's a good question i i don't know because the the knee-jerk response is like oh it's it's probably due to social media and and like manufactured consent and like Mm -hmm. people get big voices and then their followers were like shout down everyone else who does different things but like Reading about like old school lifters, it kind of seemed to be the same sort of thing, but on like a smaller scale where like if someone was like a super, super successful lifter or bodybuilder, basically like everyone in their gym and like within their town would kind of start training the same way. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, But but maybe that led to more total innovation because like, you know, now there's like thousands of little pockets of lifters that may all kind of be blindly following some dude but it's like a thousand small locuses of information versus like you know two dozen people with five hundred thousand followers on instagram you know so yeah i i don't know that's a good question though so um i just feel like i I always go to well it's probably social media (laughs) it's my reaction to almost everything that doesn't make sense to me well and, and the thing is it's it's hard to even know on social media because the people like like what you see on social media isn't reflective of reality mm-hmm. the the folk the folks who do just absolutely blindly follow what their favorite lifter or coach does and says like they could theoretically still be a tiny minority of people and they're just the most vocal social media commenters so they look like the majority you know yeah it's okay. it's hard to parse that so you've you've won multiple world titles at this point and set a bunch of records. What would you say your favorite lift or moment has been in powerlifting up to this point? Um, I mean, one of the one of my favorite is that that third bench last week. Um, I just I haven't felt this kind of like surreal feeling in a while. Um, and it was that was I'm just kind of like. I was kind of just buzzing for days. Like I, I just couldn't really believe it. Cause it was, you know, I surprised myself. So um, that's one of them. I think that m- my other, another time that just kind of has stuck out for me is, um, is 2017 open worlds, my first world title. So just a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I just had a really, really fantastic day and squatted 273 was in a world record squat off with a Ukrainian and um, ended up coming away with the 
with the world record on my third with, um, and then had a, you know, decent bench day at the time I was, I think I benched 185 and then, um, I just pulled, you know, my deadlift is always, I come out with such like a big subtotal that, um, we don't really push the deadlift. So I pulled 215 that day, I believe, um, and hit the world record total. And and it was just kind of like a really, really rewarding experience. I I was, um, I was nervous. I, I had a really crazy moment on my opening squat where we mistimed my wraps. And, um, I guess I can tell that story a little bit because pulling off that, that opening squat was, uh, I think showed me that I'm capable of a lot more than I, than I gave myself credit for. But, Basically, the coaches communicated to the person who was wrapping my knees when she should start wrapping my knees. And um, I, I don't really know what happened, but they were off by one lifter. And so I'm... Oh, that's, yeah. the, that's the worst. <laughs> oh, Jesus and, Christ. Yeah. So we were in... It was in um, Pilsen, <laughs> Pilsen, Czech Republic. And um, it's an IPF meet. So they're really, you know, they're going to follow the one minute timer and... Um, there was a, to get onto the stage, this made it worse to get on the stage. It was a really steep ramp, like really, Mm -hmm. really steep. Like it would be steep, steep to walk up this ramp without knee wraps on. And and, Um, and now you have to to totter (laughs) up it like a penguin. Yeah. So, so it's a steep (laughs) ramp and then you have to walk. The platform is right in the middle of the stage, but they had, they had taped off this little like walkway up to it where you went around to the back of the platform and then onto the platform. And they weren't letting people go straight from the kind of waiting area straight onto the platform. They said they wanted it this certain way. And so did, I'm just- Did the person who designed out. this venue ever squat in wraps before? <laughs> probably, probably not. They probably got like a lot of entertainment out of watching lifters walk, waddle around over and oh over. Oh my again. God. Some, some sick sense of humor there. <laughs> so- so I'm minding my own business, you know, getting ready for my opening squat. Cause I had a feeling it was going to be a good day. And, um, my coach, who's the head coach of the national team comes over and he's like pulling me out of the chair and she's midway through, um, she's tied off one and she's like kind of a third of the way through the other wrap. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, get, like, let me sit down. I'm getting my knees wrapped. And he's like, we gotta go. We gotta go. I have headphones on. So I like, take the headphones off to try to figure out what's going on. And she's like frantic and she's trying to tie off this knee wrap as it's on. I'm standing up and she's like, you know, like kneeling on the floor trying to tie it off. And I still don't understand what's happening. Um, And they're like, we got to go. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck? And so I get out to the platform and I realize my name's on the board and the timer is going and I don't have my wrist wrapped. I, I like, this is a complete shit show. And I waddled up. Oh, when, when, when you said they were a lifter off, I thought you were saying like, in the opposite direction and you were like sitting there with your knee wraps on for like three minutes or something. No. That's, that's exactly how I interpreted that okay. too. No, either way. I mean, really I mean, th- this, this is equally bad, Yeah, but yeah. just in a very different way. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I waddle to the top of the ramp and I have my wrist wraps in my hands and I just haven't quite gotten a chance to put them on yet because they've been putting my straps up and they're like ushering me up They're basically carrying me up this ramp get to the top. I'm trying to put the wrist wraps on while walking up to the platform. And of course that's not allowed. And so the, the technical controller's like blocking me like a, like, you know, he's, we're playing basketball against each other or something. And I'm like wrapping my wrists as fast as I can. And the clock is just ticking down. I'm watching it. And, um, everyone's like in the audience yelling, like, come on, let's go. Like, get your wrist wrapped. And I'm like, what? Like, how did this happen? This is, this is total bullshit. 
So I essentially got this start command with one second left on the clock or the squat command. Um, and just stroked it. Like, I don't, I, and I was like, I don't know. Uh, I couldn't even really remember it in the moment. Remember the rules. Like, what do I have to do here to get this, the squat command? So I'm like, I just have to get my feet set relatively in, you know, relatively in the right place. Like as long as they're somewhat at the right distance apart, I don't really care where my toes are. Like I'll just, you know, stand it up and, and we'll figure this out on the second attempt. And sure enough, I just got the start, got the squat command and uh, went down and came up. And I was like, I came off the platform just like, what in the hell did you guys just do? Because there are a lot of you and you're too qualified to be fucking something up like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was a pretty, pretty like special moment to me to be able to pull that off with against all odds, essentially. And then I told my coach after that, I was like, well, the rest of the day is going to be easy because that was insane. And, you know, he just he uh, he's a pretty like serious guy, but you know, he just kind of got a kick out of that one and, and we moved on and it was a great day. So (laughs) that's, that's awesome. Um, so this is somewhat of a change of subject and, and mostly a question for me that none of the listeners may be interested in. (laughs) Um, but one of the things I've noticed just kind of in observing trends in the sport of powerlifting is, is the sport has kind of exploded in recent years but the vast majority of the people entering the sport tend to gravitate towards raw lifting. Mm-hmm. And so like that talent pool is growing dramatically and I'm still seeing like records falling and performances improving in single ply, but, but not at the same rate, which kind of makes sense because like most of the athlete pool explosion has been in raw. But one thing I have noticed is that uh, there seem to be like a very disproportionate number of, uh, single ply bench records falling. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't live in that world. And so I'm just curious, like, where has this bench mojo come from? Like, it, it, has there been new equipment released or approved by the IPF? Like, has training for the bench press changed in the IPF? Like, do, do you have any insight into what could be behind that? Um, I, I don't know. So, so th- we, we do know about um, how from the 90s to now, the single-ply equipment has gotten much more serious. Basically, they say that in the 90s and even early 2000s, a bench shirt would just be you know kind of equivalent to a slingshot or a ram today. And mm-hmm. um, they were stretchy and, and not nearly what they are now. I think that um, that kind of wave of improvements has passed. Um, but I, but I do think if you consider, um, how recent that change still was, people are probably still figuring out how to appropriately wear those shirts and max them out. So, um, and, you know, kind of optimize their technique in them and the training. So, so we did see, uh, a, a general, um, improvement in bench performances from that change in equipment, but I think we're seeing that kind of further tick up more, um, at a more sustainable rate as people are, um, getting there kind of figuring things out. But, but I, I don't think it's been, I mean, I might be wrong, but I don't think it's been that remarkable in the last, you know, six or eight years, obviously, uh, 
Blaine's 1000 bench is crazy, but you know, he's an, he's an outlier in so many ways. Um, so the world record that I just broke was uh, almost a 10 year old record in my, in the 84 kilo class. So I think they're, um, I don't know. It's hard to say. I think it has some to do with the equipment getting more intense and probably people figuring out their training and figuring out how to, you know, learning new methods. So we have always heard about, for example, um, the Japanese bench method is different from, you know, the Western approach. And, and maybe if information like that is kind of being, is kind of trickling into what we understand as conventional, like the technique and, and training styles, then maybe that's, changing things, but, um, but yeah, it has not been as substantial as when shirt materials changed and what the IPF approved has, um, changed. Oh, oh, oh no, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Like not, not anywhere to the same degree. And, and my observations could be completely off and maybe like they're being excessively swayed by Blaine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, dude, I, I remember watching meets back in like, I don't know, maybe 2007 or so. And still like no one had benched 800 in the mm-hmm. IPF yet. And then like Brian Siders benched 800 a couple times, but his head came up. So he got red lights and people were very outraged about that. And like mm-hmm. n- now like Blaine wouldn't even consider that as like a possible opener. He's opening like a hundred pounds above it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, no, he, he, he's crazy. And what he's doing is, um, setting the bar higher, you know, just like the, the four minute mile, like he's setting, he's setting the standard higher and that's what people are chasing. They're not chasing an 800 pound bench anymore. They're chasing a 900 pound bench. And then he's, mm-hmm. he also has the, um, single lift bench record with that 1003 bench. And so, he's setting that bar higher for those guys too. So I think that part of it is, um, you know, some kind of freaks in the sport continuing to raise the bar and that just creates uh, a hunger for much higher numbers than we otherwise would be chasing. Now, I I did have a question for you, um, if you don't mind, Greg, while we're on the topic of equipment. Greg had mentioned you, you have competed both raw and equipped, but where do you see yourself competing moving forward? Um, I I like, I like equipment. I just find it much more thrilling and and maybe I'm like some kind of crazy adrenaline junkie, but I, I'm fascinated by the, um, kind of never ending pursuit of, of technical perfection and figuring out all these little like variables that, that I can manipulate and control and, um, raw just, doesn't really do that for me. I mean, I, you know, you have to realize like half of my training each week is in, even in my, like the peak of my equipped, um, equipped preparation for a competition, like my training is still 50% or more raw. Um, and so I, I do get a pretty decent dose of raw training on a regular basis and it just doesn't really give me that same thrill. So it's more of like an emotional kind of fixation on things and less about, um, like anything physical necessarily, but also, I mean, it's so much, it's a lot more fun to squat 600 pounds than 400 pounds. So (laughs) yeah, I can imagine. So I could be very behind the times on this. Uh, when I was putting some questions together for this interview, I was going to ask you about beef puff barbell. Mm -hmm. And when I Googled that Corvus strength is the first thing that came up 
And I noticed that that's now your your email address as well. Yeah. So is is Corvus Strength a new thing? Is it like a rebranded Beef Puff Barbell? Mm-hmm. And what's kind of like the meaning and and history behind behind your business? Yeah. So um, Corvus Strength Co. is the rebranded version of of Beef Puff Barbell. Um, that just happened. You're not that far behind the times. It just happened in April. Um, okay. I I feel, I feel less bad now. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, yeah. So, so originally beef puff barbell started in, um, late 2016. We officially launched January 1st of 2017. Um, it, it started kind of in for two reasons. First, um, we were used a couple of my, my former business partner and I, and a friend were using this funny hashtag on, on Instagram, um, beef puff. Like we were like, we're beefy and puffy and like, you know, this is, this is cool. And it was cute. And people really liked it and started asking us, why don't you make t-shirts that say that? And we we're kind of like, uh, you know, I don't, we don't really want to have an apparel company, but at the same time we were noticing around us, this is late 2016, that there just weren't really, um, a lot of female strength coaches at the table being, you know, taken seriously and being considered um, legitimate resources of information. And so with both of those things in mind, we decided to start the brand um, Beef Puff Barbell. And so we sold some apparel, like very limited apparel and, but mostly we're coaching um, lifters. And then we recognized this demographic that we started attracting, which was um, women, but, but a lot of, a lot of it was women who had previous kind of poor experiences in um, in the sport or with society or just kind of in general, their belonging was like just kind of uh, – they felt a sense of belonging as part of Beef Puff, having uh, coaches that they could relate to and that um, could relate to them. And so we really – took that and and pushed it forward. Um, just earlier this year, my business partner decided that she didn't want to run a coaching company anymore. And so um, it worked out just fine because I wanted to run a coaching company on my own. <laughs> and um, I decided to take things in a slightly different direction, but you know, similar messaging. So um, the Corvus Strength Co. is, um, is the logo is a raven and ravens are very resilient and intelligent and empathetic creatures. And they also have a special place in my heart. I'm originally from um, rural Alaska. And so ravens are like, we joke that that they're the state bird and um, they just are very relevant in our world. And so that's where that came from. And our, um, and, and it's still powerlifting coaching, but with a somewhat of a more, um, emotional experience to try to pursue some improved resilience through strength training. So that's um, very similar to what we talked about at Beef Puff Barbell, but just kind of a different face and a different name. That, that's that's really really cool. Um, how's uh, how's everything going? Like, is that is that your full time gig now? No. I remember. Okay, <laughs> I remember when last we spoke. You you're you're an engineer, right? I have an engineering degree. I don't know that okay. that makes me an engineer. Um, <laughs> it, 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 it does in my book. <laughs> yeah. So it's not my full-time gig. And I, I, I wrestle with this pretty often. There are, there are times um, like right now where I try to 
you know, I, I would like to figure out a way to make this a full-time gig, but if I can't, um, I, but then, you know, I, I'm afraid of putting myself in a situation where I burn out from both my competitive side of, um, you know, being an athlete in the sport and a coach in the sport. And then what do I have? Nothing. So that's a, always been a somewhat of a concern to me. And I, I try to, um, take a more realistic approach. And I, so I, I do have a day job. Um, I'm, I work in the energy industry, so renewable energy and energy efficiency, um, doing projects in rural Alaska out of, I work out of Colorado, but it's, um, a nonprofit that I am the executive director of. That That's, that's super cool. Um, and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Um, as someone who does still try to train and also like works <laughs> in strength sports full time, like it's, it is, it is a lot, especially if you don't have a ton of hobbies to fall back on. Mm-hmm. Like it, you can love lifting all you want, but if it's, it, if, if you're, if you're forced to literally think about it all the time, uh, sometimes it can start feeling more like, more like work rather than kind of a release and something you just enjoy doing. Right. Which is what it is. If you're making your living off of it, it is work. Um, but it can take like a negative kind of take a negative turn, I suppose. Yeah. So when I asked you to come on, one of the things you said is that after having been on uh, Omar and Eric Helms podcast, that you still had a lot more that you wanted to say on the topic of the female experience in strength sport generally. Mm -hmm. So if I give you that prompt... (laughs) Can can you run with it, or um, would would more targeted more, questions help? Give me a little bit more specific kind of direction. Okay, that's fair. I'm not a very good interviewer, uh, so I I was hoping I could get away with one there. <laughs> Just sit back and listen. Um, um what what so what what are uh, like so obviously strength sports can be challenging for anyone, but what are some some specific like challenges or social pressures maybe? that women competing in string sports may experience that either men wouldn't or, or don't to the same degree? Okay, sure. So um, I think the, we can start with them probably the most simple, which is um, along the lines of body image and, and aesthetic, you know, appearance and society, societal pressures to appear a certain way. So if we kind of back it up to the most basic, the most basic experiences when, um, you know, the kind of general story that a a guy learns that his female friend or, you know, colleague is taking up lifting or even CrossFit. You hear this in CrossFit all the time. It's, it's don't get too bulky. And, um, that kind of mentality, while it might not, that might nowadays be a meme or like, you know, just kind of a, um, really basic example and that we don't really hear of much anymore. It's still, that message still carries through, um, to this day. So I think that that's a pretty significant component that, um, we shouldn't overlook in general. So for a lot of high level female athletes, like it's not really a problem. Um, they look like an athlete, they're, um, smaller, they're, more kind of bought into the sport and bought into athletics in general. But I think that um, it still does play a role, but I think it's more in the realm of the um, 
kind of general population of women who might have an interest. They might see um, someone popular on Instagram powerlifting and they get an interest in it, but then um, they hear from guys, their significant other or people even further from them um, than that, that they're going to get big and buff and like that that's a problem, which is, you know, it's not a problem. <laughs> uh, it shouldn't be considered a problem. So that's um, part of it. And then the other piece of it is that a, a guy wouldn't ever really experience that. His peers or a woman is never going to say to him, yikes, you shouldn't do that. You're going to get too big. You're going to get your muscles are going to get too big. So I think that um, discrepancy between how women are treated when they begin uh, a strength journey and men is is uh, stark and pretty alarming to me that it's, it's still, um, it's still a thing. So I have, you know, the majority, I would say probably 80% of client inquiries that I get are from women who want to start powerlifting. They want to hire a coach. They want to get more serious about the sport, but at the same time, they would like to drop a weight class Mm -hmm. there. They have, you know, for, in this hypothetical example, she's never competed before, or maybe she's done an unsanctioned meet you know, nothing like we're not even talking a national qualifier. We're talking somebody who's, um, who wants to be smaller, but also wants the benefits of, of feeling empowered and strong. And I think that's really, really interesting and, um, concerning that that's our initial, you know, you're obviously interested enough in the sport to want to hire a coach and pay top dollar for programming. And, but at the same time, this arbitrary number of 63 kilos is what you want to weigh, even though that number is kind of picked out of thin air by people in powerlifting. And so, um, yeah, I think that's a really interesting and, and problematic kind of piece of, of the female experience in the sport. It absolutely kills me. I, I have had female clients in the past that random people in their office will be like, oh, make sure you don't lift, you'll get bulky. Random strangers, people that are not important in their life whatsoever, who think they have a valid opinion on how they should treat their own body is, I just can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's insane. Acquaintances that, that are now at the table trying to make decisions about how much they should weigh. Yeah. And the thing that kills me about it is as, as a male... I, you know, I do natural bodybuilding, which means in four months, I don't know if I'm going to weigh 200 pounds or 140. And those are real numbers. And I've never at any <laughs> point in my life, and Greg knows it, I, I fluctuate wildly. And never in my life has a significant other, someone who like theoretically maybe would deserve an opinion on that, depending on your viewpoint. But even a significant other has never told me like, hey, I wish you wouldn't completely change the way your body looks. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the idea that people think that they can go up to a woman who's merely an acquaintance and just levy an opinion on that is it, it is something that that males just generally don't have to deal with. And I, I don't know where that comes from, but I, I can't imagine how frustrating that would be. Yeah. And 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 I've I've run into kind of the consequences of that when coaching lifters as well. M most of the time most of the time unless someone is like quite hefty on the front end, if you've been training for like a year or two, 
you're probably currently in a lower weight class than you should end up in because you know you can still build muscle and you'll probably you'll probably be the most competitive in the highest weight class that you can get to with like fairly decent body comp like that's there there's you you can you can model that um or you can just kind of observe how lifters tend to do um and most of the men i've coached have been super on board with that and i would say 90% of the women i've coached have either wanted to uh gain muscle while staying in the same weight class and lean out but for sure stay in the same weight class or drop a weight class mm-hmm. um and even when they ask me like what's probably going to make me most competitive in the long run when i say well you know in my mind i'm thinking eh probably need to move up about two weight classes but i say like probably need to move up a weight class mm-hmm. um i get a ton of pushback and then when i ask questions to kind of like probe why that would be it's all of the stuff you're talking about like everyone in their life has told them like oh if you lift you'll get bulky and so now they're afraid that you know if i if i get into the 72 class i'll be like too bulky yeah and they like internalize that and that makes me very sad because like if powerlifting is is the thing that they say they want to focus on and they're willing to pay a substantial amount of money for coaching to improve like they they should they should be able to feel comfortable like making the decisions that they think will help them reach their goals versus things that they not not even necessarily think will placate the people in their lives but mm-hmm. will just keep them from getting shit from random people in their lives yeah i think um what also it, that kind of adds to the whole issue is the chasing of arbitrary numbers like i mentioned so it's like these the 57 and 63 numbers like i'm not opposed to coaching somebody to, you know power, like being a powerlifting coach for somebody who's trying to lose weight like that's that's okay and i always just make sure that we have the priorities set straight so you know is the goal weight loss or is the goal strength you know gaining strength and and basically we kind of balance things with with based on what the goals are but if it's i want to get to 63 by november and i also want to pr my total i'm like that's insane like we we just can't do that it's not how this works do you do you see any of those attitudes shifting as more women get into strength sports or do you do you see them still remaining just as recalcitrant i i see them recalcitrant yeah sorry i do see them i do see them shifting some i don't i don't think that so let me back up i see a a general um there are more super heavyweight or, or 84 and then 84 plus size. Like, so, I mean, I'm just using the IPF weight classes cause that's what I'm familiar with, but basically like, uh, bigger bodied women are getting interested in powerlifting more because they're being exposed to really high level athletes like, uh, Bonica, Bonica Brown and Becky, Becky Holcomb. So, I think that we are so, so I don't know that it's generally like changing um, internally within women, or if it's just we're getting more women who are comfortable in bigger bodied women who are comfortable with themselves kind of changing the average. Um, but there is, there is a general shift. And I, I think it's, it's really cool because um, we're getting a more diverse population interested in the sport. Like it's not, it's not just about getting bigger women in too. It's, it's, uh, 
it's showing showcasing the smaller lifters like Heather Connor um, that you know even though you weigh less than a hundred pounds, like you can still be strong as shit. And I think that's a really important component too. But I think um, yeah, on, I mean on on either on either end, we're seeing Im- an increase because the talent, you know, we're just seeing a crazy growth in the talent pool, but um, the more representation, the better for the sport. What are, what are some steps that people listening to this could take to um, kind of help shift attitudes and make, and and help women feel more comfortable uh, pursuing the things they want to pursue and not letting like other pressures force them down a particular road yeah um so the obvious one is to stop making comments about how women look (laughs) so i i just have this interesting story that the first time that kind of stuck with me where somebody some complete stranger in the gym said something to me i was like um i had been in powerlifting for about a year at the time i was in my early 20s and i was just going up a weight class so i started in the 72s and i um went up to the 84s after a little while and i had put on like early on i just like put on a lot of weight just muscle and fat you know just kind of like generally got bigger and that was fine but i looked a lot stronger and i was training at the gym i always trained at every single day i usually trained by myself or, you know, with a group, but was kind of doing my own thing. And some older guy walked up to me and said, wow, you are a thoroughbred. Oh, and I was what? like, Jeez. what? That, like, th- that's, that's the worst attempt at a compliment yeah, I've ever heard. Yeah, it was, it was insane. And I like, as a, you know, tw- I was like 23 at the time. And I was just kind of like, like, what? So I, I laughed at it. I, I understood that he was trying to compliment me, but I also was like, what in the world? And this is a place where I'm, I'm training all the time. I'm at this gym all the time. And I see the guy, like, I see the guy there pretty regularly kind of like, so it just all of a sudden made the whole environment, like a total different, different feeling. Um, and yeah, that was my first kind of like experience with something like that. So I think just generally speaking, um, as far as how people listening to this podcast can can improve their um, or can help women improve their kind of outlook on this is think about if it would if you're if you're a man if like if I would basically ask yourself would you say this to your guy friend and if you wouldn't say this say it to your a friend that's a male then don't say it to a friend that's a female that's general acquaintances kind of thing. Like I'm not saying like significant others, cause obviously that's a different deal, but from, you know, your, the people you see in the gym, your training partners, like if you wouldn't say the same thing and, and, and maybe that's, maybe that's not the right filter because guys can give each other shit and stuff. But, um, I think that's a, a decent place to start. Um, just because you're, uh, you know, as a, as a guy, as a, just person that trains with women, you don't have authority or in your opinion, doesn't really matter. Um, it shouldn't matter to other people. So, uh, the, that's kind of my main, I I would say my main piece of advice is, is really think about one, the message you're trying to get across, but also if it's not something that you would say to, um, 
guys you, you barely know, then why would you ever say it to a woman that you barely know? So is complimenting a woman and saying that she looks thick, solid, tight, is is that still on the table? <laughs> um, because I, I say that to every man in my life. I've, I've been on the receiving end of that from people other than Greg. <laughs> well, Greg, if you're, I mean, if you're going to say it to your guy friends, you have to say it to your female friends. Okay. <laughs> for, for, for equality. Awesome um, picks, I mean, great size. Think, keep, think, keep us updated on your progress so we can see how thick, solid, t- and tight you can get. Like that's I, that's how it goes. Ultimately, I think the goal should be to try to destigmatize. Um, like, I want us to be able to kind of communicate um, within the sport and within like the range of what's appropriate comfortably. So um, it would be amazing if we got to a day where you could communicate with uh, your like female clients in the same way that you, or your female friends in the same way that you communicate with your male friends without having to put like, like really think about it. Um, But I think we're at this point where it's too much of a um, stigmatized uh, issue. Like you're going to probably offend somebody. Um, But it would be great if we all got to a point where we're all so comfortable and proud of um, our bodies and our what our bodies are capable of that we could just uh, like you know freely talk about things like that say like wow you're looking jacked or you're looking huge without it being like uh, a potential trigger or offensive comment no that that makes sense so one thing that's kind of related to what we've talked about already you know when we were preparing for the interview I looked into your competition history and I saw that you did make a change in weight class I think around like 2014. Mm-hmm. And I think on the coaching side of things, Greg, I'm sure I mean, I'm sure all of us have heard this, but you, you get someone in who's maybe on the verge of maybe bumping up. And I see so many lifters early in their career that are so hesitant to bump up a weight class. So what's kind of like your main what, what is that decision making process when it comes to whether or not somebody should bump up or try to hang on to their weight class that they're at? Um, yeah, I think that it it obviously depends on uh, um, several factors in the situation, but generally speaking, um, I like to get a good sense of uh, what an athlete's nutrition looks like on a, you know, not just during the last 12 weeks before a competition, but year round. Like, are you eating like an asshole for eight months of the year? And can we dial that in and, and then potentially keep you closer to your weight class and then just, you know, make the water cut or the, the small diet, small deficit easier. Um, that's, I mean, I would say that the thought process around it is probably pretty similar to, uh, when you have a male athlete in the same situation. However, you have to manage the, um, the, the emotional and mental side of things maybe a little bit more than, than with most guys. So I generally approach it with, let's just go into this meet without a cut. So you might only be three kilos or four kilos over and, um, but we'll go in, in a caloric surplus without a water cut. And then you let the lifting and the PRs kind of speak for you. Um, I think more often than not, if somebody has been cutting pretty hard or dieting and then cutting, they're going to, and, and then they're, you know, getting to a point where their total is not going up as you know, as at the rate that they would like to see and their training is not as fun and they're kind of restricted most, a lot of the year or several weeks, um, 
more weeks and you know more months than they want to be restricted. I think you I think it's most important to kind of let that decision happen on the athlete side and one way you can do that like I said is by just eliminating the the deficit and the weight cut and um, let the big huge PR total speak for itself. We don't have to jump full into, you know, you don't need to fill out the next weight class right away. And and th- that's another kind of important message that needs to be relayed. Like you can be midway through, you can be 67 kilos. Um, and that gives you, you know, one room to grow slowly into the 72s, but also maybe some peace of mind that you're not going to just like all of a sudden put on, you know, an, an additional five kilos of, of body fat. Yeah, that, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, I remember the only time I was in that position, I was like right between two weight classes. And I was so focused on a particular number I wanted to hit that I was like, well, why would I risk missing that just to bump down a weight class? But I guess that really would help kind of shift the focus on like, let's just look at the numbers we're going for, set some PRs. And I mean, once your training starts going so smoothly at that higher weight, then then you'd be a lot more open to the idea of like, yeah, let's just stay here. Yeah. And then, and then over time, slowly fill that out. I I think I do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I also think that way too many lifters are focused way too much on weight classes Mm -hmm. in the first place. Like if for, for a lot of people, um, like winning a state championship or qualifying for nationals, like that may be the biggest thing they ever accomplish in the sport. And if you're kind of at that level and it's like, okay, like there's, there's some like big things that, that matter a lot to me that like, I really want to accomplish. Then it's like, okay, let's start thinking about what weight class would be best for me to do it in. Like what qualifying total looks manageable? What weight class in my state do I think I could probably like, you know, pick off a win in? Um, I think that's, that's very reasonable, but like, that's not going to be at least like two thirds, three quarters of lifters out there. And I think, I think until you kind of get to that level that you're approaching like very serious competitive goals, you should just kind of train and lift and Mm -hmm. roll up to a meet at whatever weight you want to be at. And then, you know, once you start reaching that point that it's like, okay, there's, there's some, some big things I have my eye on, then start thinking about weight classes. But until that point, just, just get strong and that will often coincide with with gaining some weight in the process as long as your body comp doesn't get way too out of control. Yeah, I completely agree. Natalie, is there is there anything else you would like to to leave the audience with that we haven't covered yet? Did we get to whatever you missed out on when you were on uh Helms I, and Omar's podcast? Yeah, I mean, I think that it wasn't necessarily any like particular uh, points that I wanted to make, but it was just kind of like this conversation that could have kept going and going. Um, I, I think that a lot of those topics will be addressed by having, uh, female elite athletes and coaches on podcasts kind of more often. We, we just don't really, don't really get on podcasts very often. And so, um, you know, there's, there are some folks that have some or women that have some really interesting insight from like we had, we talked with Jen Thompson and she's been in the sport a lot longer than Steffi and I, and she just has some interesting perspective that, you know, that I don't have and that, you know, a lot of people don't have. So that's really where I was kind of going with that. 
That makes sense. And Jin is a fucking monster. Yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> Pe- people don't understand how good at bench pressing she truly is. Like, so th- this this is just kind of an aside. Um, but a-, a while back, I, I downloaded all of the data from Open Powerlifting and... I was trying to, this was before the IPF formula came Mm -hmm. out, and I was trying to like play around with it and come up with a scaling formula that worked better than Wilkes, uh, but that didn't piss people off as much as allometric scaling (laughs) did. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to see is, you know, in these formulas I'm playing around with, uh, how, how far from the mean in terms of like standard deviations are these various like very, very good lifters. And... Jen Thompson's bench press was like 8.6 standard deviations from the mean uh, for like scaled bench press for for all uh, drug-free female competitors. And then even if I isolated it to just like the top 10 percentile, um, so, you know, people who might not necessarily be world-class, but who are quite good lifters, she was still like almost five standard deviations from the mean above them. And just for context... Like not his not his most recent total, but the the prior record that John Hack had at uh, in, in the eighty three kilo class for men, which was probably the best total anyone had hit in the IPF since maybe one of Jesse Norris's big totals. Mm-hmm. He was like he his total was like four point six standard <laughs> deviations from from the mean, not like the mean of of the top ten percent of lifters, but just the mean, which like. Almost five standard deviations is still wild, but like Jen's bench was as far above the the just top ten percent of lifters versus it was like her bench was comparably above the top ten percent that John's total was above like the the average, and John's also ridiculously good. So basically, Jen is a fucking monster. And Greg, you know that I love statistics just so the listeners (laughs) appreciate what like as a researcher, if I have a data point that's three standard deviations from the mean, almost always I can just in the paper report like that that number was so abnormal that I chose to disregard it. Like three standard deviations is kind of the research standard, at which point you would say I can throw that out because that's just insane. If it's four standard deviations away, no one would ever fight you on the decision of like, well, I need to exclude that from the analysis because it's just simply insane. Nine standard deviations. That is crazy. Yeah. The the criterion used for like aircraft engineering to make sure that the materials have like high enough tolerances that like a wing doesn't fall off when you're when you're flying. Uh, they use, I believe, the seven sigma standard which is basically like these materials, uh, their strength is seven standard deviations higher than would be required for like typical flight conditions. And like that that's considered an incredibly like unbelievably safe standard for engineering things that you want to really make sure don't fall out of the sky. And Jen's like another two standard deviations <laughs> beyond that. So just to like Jen is amazing, um, but I... I would like to point out that there is a uh, that sh- she was in a very close battle with a Russian at Bench Worlds, who is nearly as strong as she is. And then there's an Italian girl. Um, her name's Carola Gara, 
who benches who's benched 133 kilos at 63 just recently. So oh, we're talking, I mean, it's what is, you know, this is Jen is setting the standard. Like we were saying earlier, she's setting this, the standard at, you know, 145 kilos or whatever it is. Um, and now women are where the talent pool is opening up so much that we have women, 63 kilo women who are chasing that, that number and, and getting close to it. We're going to have to re- recalculate those deviations soon. <laughs> <laughs> so that being the case, so so obviously, like, I believe all of our assumptions is are probably that the sport's going to keep growing, mm-hmm. keep improving, the records are going to keep going up. Um, where Where do you personally see women's powerlifting heading in the next, like, five years or so? Like some of like the outlier people that we look at right now. So like, look at Jen Thompson and how crazy her bench press is. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's kind of just going to be the standard of like, well, if you're not kind of close to this, you're not really going to be competitive in any weight class five years from now. Or do you think that it's going to be like a little bit less of a explosion than that? Well, I have thoughts on this. So if we can open it up a little bit more generally, um, I am very curious to see um, how what turnover in the sport begins to look like over the next mm-hmm. few years. So um, this isn't specific to female powerlifting at all, but um, I just have this like curiosity in. So a lot of the top equipped powerlifters that we see um, have been doing this, have been in the sport for, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 years. And when raw became more popular and was became like a recognized division, a lot of the kind of old timer coaches said, well, you know, gear is what kept people healthy and kept people lifting for longer. Um, And that's why you have people like Priscilla Ribic who continued to win 20 years into the game. And, you know, she just, her, uh, longevity was improved by the equipment she was using. And, you know, I, I always took that with a grain of salt because I think that a lot of people were somewhat resistant to raw becoming more popular. However, um, fast forward to 2019, I think that we're seeing, um, a, a really, it seems to me like a really high rate of, um, either of, of injury that puts people out of the sport almost indefinitely. And I just am, I'm very curious to see if going forward, you know, the next decade or 15 years, if we start to see people who show up, do some crazy shit, break records, and then they don't, but they don't last more than five years because they're, they just push it so hard, so fast, um, and then kind of fall apart. And so, you know, I think that the, that's that's more of generally in the sport and i'm i'm going to be very curious to see how that all kind of how that how the chips fall in that way um i think back to your question about women in the sport and and female powerlifting as a as a division yeah i think that we're seeing i think we're just scratching the surface of uh what we're going to start seeing like as far as performances go and i you know it's there, there are women hitting numbers that are mind blowing to, you know, I'm, I'm 84 kilos. There are 63 kilo women 
hitting close to my best ever total. And, um, and I, when, when I, my last raw meet, I broke the American record total in the 84s. And now it's like a hundred kilos more than that is the the American record. And that was just in 2016. So that's the, gives you an idea of the trajectory we're we're talking about here. Um, It was 505 at the Arnold in 2016. And now the American record total is 603, I believe in that same weight class. Yes. Yeah. So um, with that in mind, yeah, I think that we're going to keep seeing this to some degree. I don't think it's going to continue at the same trajectory forever, obviously, like that just isn't how it works. But I I think that we will see um, things are just going to continue to ratchet up. And um, but I but I want to know, I'll be, you know, like I said, I'll be interested to see how how long people in general stick with it. Or do they just show up, do some crazy shit, and then, you know, their back is no longer in condition to hit those same high totals. And so they like burn out because they're not as strong as they were a year ago. And, you know, just kind of how that all works out. Do you do you think that uh, turnover is lower in multiply? Like you, you mentioned oh, a few people who, who or not multiply, <laughs> single ply. I mean, I've had people ask me bad. for advice and like multiply yeah. lifting advice. And I'm like, don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because like you, you, you mentioned a few people who have had exceptional longevity, but do you, do you? I mean, obviously that's not typical, but in terms of like the average lifter, have you seen people uh, with more longevity and lower turnover with single ply? I think so. I think that there's uh, more. I, th- I think that there are are more lifters who are competing now, and uh, at least on the international level. I, you know, the national level is a little bit of a different deal because. Mm-hmm. We're, uh, for the most part, like people are managing their, their careers and their children and, and we're like, it's a hobby. So you're going to see more turnover because of that just naturally. But when we're talking about the international scale where there are state sponsored programs and people are power, you know, a sportsman as their IPF profile will say, they're a professional sportsman. Um, we're, we have, there's a, a lot of people who have been lifting for a long time. Um, I, I, you know, we could name names, but, uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable how many like masters one lifters are breaking the world record total, that kind of thing. It makes sense. It'll, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how things swing, like, especially since raw was getting a lot of the attention. Now, if, if a lot of the people who the spotlight is on in the sport currently, if a lot of them made the shift to single ply, I think it would be interesting to see what would happen on the single ply side of things if it experienced like the same oh. explosion in interest that Raw has in recent years. Oh yeah, I, I don't really see that happening. I don't think it's that appealing. But um, I mean, it would be very interesting. But I just, I don't. It's a different animal. <laughs> it's not flashy Fair at enough. all. It's not flashy. <laughs> Fair enough. So we've reached the magical point in this interview where you have as much time as you want to shill anything you could possibly <laughs> want to shill. So where, where can, where can people find you? Uh, wh- what sort of products and services are you putting out onto the marketplace? 
uh, let us have okay, it. Okay, cool. So it, no uh, pressure, but this this part of the show is basically the lifeblood of capitalism as a concept. <laughs> so make sure you live up to that standard. <laughs> so um, I am a powerlifting coach with Corvus Strength Co. And the website is www.corvusstrength.co. Um, you can find any information that you would like to know about our services there. Um, and then I'm on Instagram at natalie.907. And uh, yeah, that's about it. That was all right. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think capitalism has been weakened somewhat, but will will live to see another day. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, Natalie. it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah, thank thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.